You know, my observation is that everybody's looking for some leadership in their life. I always am looking for a person who can provide some leadership in my life. And I think that everybody really values leadership in our life. You know, be it a friend or be it a pastor or be it another uh, person, just a person in our life. We love that leadership. And it's interesting that, that this would be the video for today because we're talking a little bit about leadership today or headship. You know, my position title here at North County Christ the King is Lead Pastor. Now, that's a scary title. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's presuming that, that I can lead, right? And it's presuming that there are people that want to follow, right? And so I never really planned to be a lead pastor. That was not in my plans at all. In fact, I avoided it like the plague for about 30 years. Um, I was a youth pastor for 10 years. I loved that, loved working with students. And then for about 25 years, I was an associate pastor and a worship pastor. And I loved that. That was the most fun, doing what Joel and Becky do up here. But I never planned to lead a church. I never planned that. That wasn't anything I was looking for. It took Kim three years to talk me into it. And I said no several times, you know. It's humbling. And it's a bit daunting to lead a group of people. And I think, at least this is my observation, is that people tend to look at pastors and think that we're different somehow, other than being odd, right? Just different in the sense that maybe we don't have struggles or maybe we don't have issues in our life. But I want to set that record straight, as I do from time to time, that I have the same challenges, issues, and troubles that you have. I lead in the tension of trouble in my own life. I struggle like any man. Like any man, I'm one poor choice away from sinning. That's the same struggle I have that any person in the room has. And the same is true for any pastor or any leader or parent or business CEO that we fix our eyes on. It's great to have leadership in our our lives, but we should never fix our eyes on that person to be fail-proof or to think that they could never fail. We've all heard of leaders who have fallen into sin whether it's substance abuse or whether it's mismanagement or whether it's pornography or whether it's adultery, we hear these stories. And if we have our eyes on the man or on the woman, then our lives are at risk. Our churches are at risk if we just keep our eyes on that man or on that woman. And so it's important that we remember that even though God allows us to have leaders, and in fact God set up his kingdom that way, We all need to keep our eyes on Jesus. Somebody say, Amen. Amen. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. He never fails us. You know, when I'm worshiping in the front row three times on a Sunday, that's what I'm doing. I'm fixing my eyes on Jesus. And with you, I'm reminding myself that only He is truly foolproof, failproof, dependable. That he will never, ever fail us. And that's why he is the head of the church. I only help lead in a very limited capacity. But Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He is our leader. So if you would turn to Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 18 today, we're going to jump through these uh, next several uh, verses of Scripture here in Colossians. It says, Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. Can you say body? Body, that's you, that's us, it's a body, right? He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is the first in everything. And that's number one in your notes today, in your notes, in your program. There are some notes you can take out, fill in the blanks. And number one is that Jesus Christ is the head of his body, the church. You know, I think that everybody wants 
to be covered in their life. And don't you wish there was someone in your life where the buck stopped so it didn't have to stop with you? I wish that. And sadly, I mean, the buck does stop with me a lot in my own personal life and with my wife. But I think all of us would love to be covered. We would love great leadership. We would love this thing called headship that we can trust. And Jesus gives us that. Jesus gives us the leadership that we're longing for, that we're looking for. He's the father we need. He's the brother we need. He's the savior we need. He's the head of the church for all time in every place. And ultimately over North County Christ the King and every church on the planet today, Jesus is the authority. Jesus is where the buck stops. You know, as a pastor, I pray for you all the time. This morning as you were walking in and I was watching people walk in and visiting with a few people, I was praying for you. I watch you and I pray for you. That's what I do. And oftentimes when I pray for you, I say, Jesus, they are yours. They're not mine. They're yours. They're your church, especially if you're being bad. If you're being bad, then I just quickly turn you right over to Jesus. So just know that. If you want to be bad, you know, that's your choice. But you're going to end up with Jesus. Not in my office, but you'll end up in his office. And I say to him, I say, Lord, have your way with them. And I say that to me. I say, Lord, have your way with me, for my wife, for my children. Lord, have your way with us. And we need Jesus, don't we? We need Jesus desperately. I need Jesus. Just like the body, the physical body, you know, can't exist without the head. Once the brain is, is dead, the body is, is done. And just like that, the church also can't survive and, and certainly can't thrive without Jesus being at the head. And so that's what Jesus says is what matters. And his word still holds what Jesus said. So his word still matters. And we stake our lives and our ministry and our church upon the word of God. And we try to live as closely to this as we can. Because Jesus is the head. And what Jesus said matters. He's the final authority on how we live. So this scripture says that Jesus is the head of the church. What does that mean? It means that every person who has ever believed and ever received Christ as their Savior, every believer for all time, uh, from the first believer in Jerusalem in the first century to Egypt, to Syria, to Greece. How many of you know the church didn't start in the United States of America? Did you know it's truly not an American religion? It's a Middle Eastern religion. It's an African religion. This church started far, far from here. Every believer in Greece, every believer in Rome, every person that's ever trusted Jesus through the ages until this moment in time and anybody who receives him today in our service is a part of the church, is a part of the body of Christ. Those nations that we support, that we see hundreds and hundreds of salvations and baptisms every year, India, Cambodia, Haiti, They become part of the body when they make that decision. What other cult or religion can claim that? That over centuries of time we have been building this body, this living organism of followers of Christ. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, he said, Some of us are Jews, some of us are Gentiles, some of us are slaves, some of us are free, but we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit. Can you say one spirit? One spirit, and we all share that same spirit. You know, when this happened, 
When Jesus rose from the dead and the church was born, when this happened, Jesus put Jews and Gentiles together. Do you know how hard that was? It's still hard today, folks. And that was the mystery plan that Paul was talking about in Ephesians, that Jesus was going to be uniting Jews and Gentiles in Christ, the most unlikely union you could ever imagine. Our church is kind of like that, if you think about it. I mean, here in Linden, what do we have? Well, we have people that lean toward Calvinism, predestination and election, and then some who lean more toward being Arminian, which is uh, God's foreknowledge and our free will. I kind of ride the middle. I like to live in the mystery. I totally believe that these two doctrines of Scripture, both of them provable in Scripture, can coexist together and only God knows how. That's what I believe. I'm going to let him sort that out. But the fact of the matter remains that here we are all together in this room. And everybody leans a little differently in in your doctrine, but yet in the spirit of Jesus Christ and around his gospel We remain one. We remain unified. We remain useful in His hand because we don't get bound up in some of the things that we disagree on. So the confirmation of salvation is having the same Spirit. And having the Spirit means living lives that are fruitful. That's what it means. When you get saved and you receive the Holy Spirit, that means that you're now going to begin living a life that is fruitful because the Holy Spirit bears fruit in your life. Okay, What is that fruit? Well, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says that when you believed in Christ, He identified as you as His own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom He promised you long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that He will give us the inheritance He promised and that He has purchased us to be His own people. He did this. Here's the first fruit so that we would praise and glorify Him. That's the first fruit you look for from somebody who's received Christ. And the Holy Spirit lives in your heart. That you become a person that now begins to praise and glorify God with your life. And that's what the Holy Spirit does in you. Jesus saves you, but the Holy Spirit authenticates your salvation. He authenticates your identity in Christ. You know, yesterday I was setting up one of, I don't know how many I have now, online accounts. Anybody have online accounts with banks and different things? So I was setting one up again yesterday, and I had to come up with a username and a password. Is anybody else tired of trying to come up? And how can you possibly remember all these different passwords? That's why people choose the same password. And so then they get hacked, right? I am so tired of trying to come up with a new username and password. So I'd like to receive any help. Anybody want to give me a username and password? I'll use them. Okay? That's a joke, you know, because then you'll have it. You get that? Okay. Okay, just checking. But what do these do for us? These prove who we are, right? Prove who we say that we say that we are who we say, and then they protect our identity from those who would steal it. That's what usernames and passwords. Well, here's the beautiful thing about the Holy Spirit and our salvation, and our eternity. And it's that you can rest in the fact that Jesus is your username. Jesus is your username, not your name. Jesus is your username, and the Holy Spirit is your password. And the Holy Spirit authenticates you as his own. How do you know you're his? How do you know you belong to the Spirit? Well, your life begins to change to reflect the work of the Spirit in your heart. Your fruit begins to change. You begin to glorify and praise him with your life, 
And that's lived out by how you treat others. Love God, love others, right? The great commandment. Love God, love others. How you treat others is the biggest indicator that you have the Holy Spirit in your life. That's why Paul dedicated 1 Corinthians 13 to saying, you know, it's not all about the gifts. It's not about speaking in tongues. It's not about prophecy. If you don't have love one for another, then that's just a big symbol clanging and clashing. You're you're just making noise. Am I minimizing the gifts? Of course not. I love the gifts. I'm just saying that the number one indicator of the Spirit alive and well in your life is that your fruit begins to be things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is the fruit of the Spirit. And so you know the Spirit is alive and well in your life when you begin to come forth with fruits like these and begin to change in how you relate with one another. And I want to mention this about fruit. Fruit is other-centered, not self-centered. What's the purpose of fruit? It's to be picked and enjoyed and for seeds to be spread and planted. And so when you produce fruit, people get to pick it. People get to enjoy you more. And the seeds of the gospel, the seeds of the love of Christ are spread. You live to give. You live to make a difference with your life. Ultimately, you help reconcile people back to Christ. That's the greatest fruit you can produce in your life. Love somebody well enough that they come to Christ, living to draw people to Christ. And so Colossians 1.19, as we read on, For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled. Can you say reconciled? Reconciled. God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Christ's blood was God's peace to us. And God's entire purpose for creation is for us to be reconciled, for all of creation to be reconciled. That's his purpose for this thing we live in called life and earth. God's purpose is reconciliation. That's number two in your notes. Jesus Christ is God's plan to reconcile his beloved creation back to himself. What does reconcile mean? Reconcile means to bring back to yourself. And bringing back means that it once belonged. It once belonged. And now it was lost. And now it's being brought back. That's what reconcile means. That's why Jesus as creator is such a big deal to the Bible and to me and to our church. Jesus as creator is so important because you can't reconcile what was not yours. You know, creation speaks to the gospel story in that Jesus made us, then we were lost, and now he's bringing us back. It's all the gospel story. And so to not recognize Jesus as creator is really minimizing the power of the gospel and the power of reconciliation because truly you can't reconcile what wasn't yours. And you can only redeem, you can only buy back what you once owned. That's what the word redeem means. It means to buy back. Think of it this way. Somebody breaks into your house, okay, and you've got these pearls that you've had for generations, and they're in this beautiful wood box that was made, you know, five generations ago by a craftsman grandfather in your family. And you have this beautiful thing, and somebody breaks into your house and steals this irreplaceable box. There will never be another one like it, and steals these precious jewels. And this thief hawks them to the pawn shop. 
where they get pawned off for a fraction of their worth, right? Pawned off for a fraction of their worth, sold cheap to anyone. That's our world. That's our world. The world is happy to buy us for cheap. The world is happy to pawn us off and to buy us and then sell us for cheap to whoever will have us. That's the world's way. But the original owner of these pearls does the hard work to find the pawn shop. You know, they check online on Craigslist. They see who's selling pearls in a box. They finally track them down. And then they find the buyer. And then they tell the buyer, I will pay any price to get these precious pearls and this precious one-of-a-kind masterpiece box back. That's what I will do. Even though I owned them, I don't care. I will pay any price to get them back. These are precious. And so he redeems them. He buys them back. He pays whatever it takes, even though his family owned them before they were stolen. That's redemption. That's redemption. It's buying back what once belonged to you. Now this passage talks about God making peace with creation, with the earth. I gotta, I have to address this, okay, because the world is getting the wrong idea about this and culture is getting the wrong idea about this. It's important to note that we are reconciled to God, not God reconciled to us. And there's a difference. If you think a little deeply with me this morning, we are reconciled to God. Now the world would like to reconcile God to them. The world would like to make God conform to their lifestyle or to their values or to their comfort. That's what the world does. We're seeing this happen in the church now today. We're seeing churches trying to reconcile God to what they've chosen to believe about this. Okay? That's what we're seeing. But that's not true reconciliation. Reconciliation is not trying to get God to bless whatever way we decide to live. That's not how God set it up. He's not reconciled to us. We are reconciled to Him. We don't reconcile God to our adultery or our pornography or our sexual deviancy or our killing of babies. We don't reconcile God to that. No, God reaches down into our dysfunction and sin and he says, let me make peace with you. And you can, if you respond to that peace, if you come to me, if you reconcile with me, then we can have a relationship. That's what God says. So God reconciles us to him, to his image, to his holiness, to his completeness, to his life-giving values. Not the other way around. Does that make sense? That's the truth of God's word. And he does this through Christ. It's Jesus who carries God's completeness to us. And then he says, whosoever will may come. Let's look at verse 19 again. God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. There it is on the screen. God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. This word fullness, pleroma in the Greek, means completeness. It's used to describe God Himself, that He is complete in and of Himself. God doesn't need anything from us. Yes, God desires relationship with His creation, but He doesn't need us, even though He loves us. He's not going to become codependent with us and enable us 
to live poorly because he needs us somehow. He's not needy. He's not going to compromise his values and his holiness for us. This word completeness that is used in this passage by Paul is also used in John chapter 1 to describe God's grace in Christ, his completeness in Christ, that the sacrifice for us, the peace for us is complete if we'll receive it, okay? God's love and unfailing faithfulness. But this verse in Colossians 1.19 says that God's completeness, His character, His nature lives in Christ. And only in Christ are we brought back to God. That's why Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Only in Christ is God's completeness found. So God made peace through Christ's blood on the cross. Christ's blood satisfied the need for a sacrifice for our sin once and for all. It released the power of God. It released the peace of God to us, to save us. And the only thing required of us is to believe, is to have faith, and to receive it for ourselves, and then to let Christ live through us. Christ's reconciliation of us is two things I want to mention today, judicial and positional, okay? Judicial and positional. I know this is getting a little heady for you this morning, but it's very important we understand this doctrine. Christ's reconciliation of us is judicial. It means that it fulfills what the law required. There's a lot of talk going on today about whether or not we need the Old Testament. Of course we need the Old Testament. It lays out why what we have today works. Right? It lays out all the history leading up to the cross. And Jesus' reconciliation of us is judicial because it fulfills what the law required for the Jews. And even the law that was built into creation. Do you realize if you read Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, this law of sacrifice was built into creation. That what God did when they sinned was to cover their shame and their nakedness by doing what? By sacrificing some animals, taking their skins. And covering Adam and Eve's shame and guilt and nakedness. Do you know that the very first sin committed by man and woman was covered by an animal sacrifice? Sacrifice, and the idea of sacrifice is built into creation. God designed it that way. Read the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. It'll make it easy for you to understand how God comes to humanity and becomes one of us. And judiciously speaking, this sacrifice that Jesus made in all completeness covers our sin. You know, we see this in the adoption process. We've got a lot of families in our church and in our community that adopt kids. And they meet with a judge. And, they, and the judge declares, he declares or she declares the adoption legal. And now forevermore the child is part of the forever family, right? It's judicial. It fulfills the requirements of the law. So Christ declares that over our lives. Well, Christ's reconciliation for us is also positional. And that is that anyone can step in to the position or the peace that God has made for us through Jesus Christ. We sang it this morning. Beautiful. sang the gospel this morning. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would step in, that whosoever would believe on him would have eternal life. It's positional. Anyone can be saved. Every one of us were his enemies. Every one of us were far from him, separated by our unbelief, alienated, cut off from God and his love. 
You see, we all think that it's the lesser sins that are the big deal. But it's really the sin of unbelief that is the big deal. Unbelief is what separates us from the peace and the love that God brings us through Christ Jesus. Let's read about that. Verses 21 and 22. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless. Are you with me? You are holy and blameless. Does anybody feel holy today? Does anybody feel blameless today? Well, let me take it another level. As you stand before him without a single fault. What? How can that be true? I know my faults. I know my tendencies. I know my frailties and my humanness. I know how I respond when I get angry. What? How can, you, how can I be without a single fault? And this doctrine, this truth, takes us into a freedom, an amazing and powerful truth, that number three, our position in Christ is faultless before God. Folks, you're not going to hear anything better today. It doesn't get any better than that. Your position before God is faultless in Christ because of Christ's, His physical death on the cross. Now, many of us were raised in churches where there was a priority placed on performance. And I understand we want to, want to live well, we want to live right. But somehow we got the idea that that was what produced our right standing. That if you could just be good enough, then you could somehow, you know, sort of crawl your way before God kind of grovel your way into his presence. I know many of us felt that way as we grew up. That's how it was. And sometimes, even now, we make the mistake of thinking that that if we're just good enough, then we can live for God. We can be good enough for him. Well, Paul makes it clear in Romans 3, if you were to turn there, our hopeless condition before Christ. There's nothing you can do to be good enough. Here's what Paul said. He said, He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Throw that in there for the Calvinists this morning. There you go. So in Christ, we are without blemish. Wrap your heads around this, folks. This is the truth of God's word. In the Greek, it's amomus. We're blameless, without blemish. And another word that's tied to this is this word anecletus, which means free from accusation. I don't know about you, but I feel accused pretty much on a regular basis. Like my mind, my head gets these accusations from the devil or from my own self. And if you're like me, you have to wrestle with that a lot. And this is my saving grace that I believe in the bottom of my heart that I'm free from that. And so my fighting back is simply to believe what Paul and what, what Paul said about us and what Jesus has done for us. I have to fight like you've got to fight. I'm free from the accusation. Free from all charges is really what it means. Any charge brought against me in Christ, my position before God is that I'm free from those charges of sin, of death, of shame, of guilt. So again, let's review this. Before Christ, our position is fallen. Our selfish sin nature produced self-centered living, self-centered fruit. But our position in Christ now that God sees us and how he sees us, is through the sacrifice, through the death 
of Jesus Christ on the cross. We are now blameless and free from accusation, from blemish, from fault as we stand before God. That's how God sees us. Is that how you see you? That's how God sees us. Is that how you live? Is out of that freedom of being blame-free and having no accusation. Now, I understand. I understand that we fall, that we fail, that we have sin, and that we have to confess and we have to repent. And that's where that cleansing comes, right? If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive and cleanse. But at the same time, God does not want his children living in perpetual shame and guilt over the things that you've done. And so God says to you this morning, your position before me is faultless, is blameless, is without accusation in Christ. You know, when people spend a long time in prison, like 20 years in prison or 30 years in prison, I've heard that when they get out, it's hard to adjust to freedom. It's hard to adjust to being able to have, buy anything you want. I mean, just living in Taiwan, it was hard for me to adjust and come back to the U.S. and have, you know, 50 flavors of salad dressing. I'm not kidding. It was so overwhelming the first time in the grocery store But I almost didn't buy anything because in Taiwan there was no salad dressing. You know, there was fish and stuff, (laughs) weird stuff. And so just like that, when you come to Christ and your position changes, when you're freed from the, the prison of accusation and fault and blame, it's hard to adjust. And so it takes a time of of being reacclimated, or I should say acclimated for the first time, of what it means to be free from the accusation of the enemy and the guilt and shame of sin in our life. And so I believe that's what it means to walk with Jesus the rest of your life, you know. That's what sanctification means. It's the rest of your life you're going to learn to live in your new position. That's really what sanctification is. And through that living in your new position, your heart's going to change. You're simply going to love God more and you're going to love others more. So this happens, reconciliation of sinners happens, according to our text, by Christ's physical body through death on a cross. That's how that happened. Again, a little bit of doctrine for you. This is why it's so important that you believe and you know that Jesus Christ is eternal God. Is eternal God. The power of his death on the cross is not that some good man died on a cross. Many good people have died for us. None of it resulted in eternal life for us. Many men and women have given their lives for good causes. Only Jesus Christ gave his life as God in a man's body. And so this idea that he didn't, that he somehow became a God, that's what the Mormons teach, or he somehow, you know, arrived at his Godhood, or he was just a good man or a good prophet, robs the gospel of its power. So you cannot believe both things at once. Okay? You must believe that Jesus is God for the gospel to have power. Why would it matter if you didn't believe that? So we must, brothers and sisters, hold firm to what is true in the Word of God. Because by it we are saved. Don't ever compromise the power found in the deity the eternal character and nature of Jesus Christ. Don't minimize it. It will lose its power. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There's one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. There it is. 
He gave his life to purchase freedom for everybody. So clearly Jesus is the one God who can reconcile, and he is man. A miracle that God did, that only God could perform. In order to redeem humans, Christ himself had to become human in order to fully grasp what it is that his creation goes through and experiences, the condition that we face. It's easy to, well, I shouldn't say it's easy, but you, know, you can create it, it's another thing to live it, right? So he chose to do that. Hebrews 2.17 It was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful, that means so he could understand and could be our faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. He had to become like us so that he could be merciful in every respect, fully understand the frailty of humanity, and feel the same kind of emotions that we feel as a human being. So I just want to mention, sort of in passing today, that being blameless and faultless before God doesn't give us license to sin. Can I just throw that out there? You're like, well, I'm already authenticated. Might as well have a good time. No, it doesn't. It doesn't give us license to sin. Rather, our lives and our values and our choices to love God and to love others should follow our position in Christ. We should live like who we really are now. Right? So the proof of a new life is a changing life, no longer under the shame and guilt, but letting Jesus cleanse us daily. I love this passage in Hebrews 10. It says, Dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. Let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him, trusting that what he said is true. He accepts us and sees us without fault. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. You know, we get to live out this incredible blessing of being washed and being clean, and, and we get to change. Our lives get to change in response to this washing. You know, it's like when you've been working out in the yard, and, and that's coming quickly. It's going to be soon. Trust me, we're going to have you know, nice weather. Work out in the yards very soon. I'm believing for this, right? It's when you've been working out in the yard and finally at the end of a 10-hour day you go in and you take that shower. How many of you just stand under that shower for a long time and just let the dirt and the grime and the work and the sweat be rinsed off of your body? And once you do that, how many of you just go out there and roll in the mud again? No, you want to stay clean, don't you? You put on some jammies, you turn on the fireplace, have a cup of tea, right? Curl up in front of the fire and enjoy being clean. And I want to say to you today, enjoy being clean. Enjoy being clean, but don't go out and roll in the mud again. Jesus wants us to stay as clean as possible. He'll clean us up when we get dirty. Only he can really keep us clean. So you've got to keep believing that Jesus is the only way to be faultless. You've got to keep believing that Jesus is the only way for you to stay faultless before God. Let's close with this last verse, 23. But you must, can you say you must? You must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. What was happening there was that a lot, a lot of the Christians were going back into the law. They were starting to depend again on the law. And uh, Hebrews talks about this as well, where it talks about the sacrifice no longer having power. 
And that's because they were leaving their faith in Christ and they were moving back into works or into keeping the law to try to earn their position. And, and Paul here is saying, don't do that. Don't go back to law. Stay in grace, stay in faith, stay in, in what Jesus has provided, but then live well. Stay near the cross. Stay near the cross. You know, we'll talk about resurrection on another day, but the cross is where Jesus paid the price for us to be faultless, without blame, without blemish before him. You know, I've asked Becky to come and lead us in a hymn this morning. Uh, this just came to my head as I was finalizing my message today. And I want to just stay in your seats, and I want us just to meditate on these words as we sing this song together. It's a beautiful old hymn. Um, that really, really speaks to the, the power of the cross and what Jesus does for us. So let's sing it together. Jesus, we thank you for your cross this morning. We thank you for your love that took you there. We thank you for your sacrifice that brings us before almighty and holy God without blemish, without accusation. And so Lord, this morning, once again, we give our hearts to you. We respond to your peace. We move into reconciliation with you through receiving Jesus, the gift of eternal life, forgiveness of our sin, the greatest, most precious gift we could ever experience as our own. And we thank you for that. And we celebrate that today. And we worship you today for the gift of your sacrifice and your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to close with one more song this morning, and we're going to give as we do that. So let's worship him with one more great song about the gospel.